Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Our rabbis have pointed out that the word Pesach is actually a conjunction of two different Hebrew words. Pe, which means mouth, and sach, which means to speak. So now, I want to talk to you about certain things that we say that hold us back. If we're sensitive to the way we use these words, we can liberate them in the spirit of Pesach, and we can redeem ourselves in the process. So let me tell you a story about the word love. I heard it from Reb Shlomo, and uh, Reb Baruch of Mezhibush, he was the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, and he was one of the great Hasidic masters, and, and he was famous for having very strong opinions about certain subjects, and one of his contemporaries was another great Hasidic master, the Berdichever Rebbe, Reb Levi Yitzchak, who was just on fire, on fire with the love of Hashem and with the love of every Jew. And Rev Levi Yitzchak was always asking Rev Baruch to have him over for Friday night for Shabbos dinner. And Rev Baruch wouldn't have him over. And Rev Baruch was like a very princely. And he was like, you know, I run my Shabbos table a certain way and I know the way you are and the two are not a mix. And it's not happening. And Reb Levi Yitzchak just never stopped asking him. And so finally, Reb Baruch says, okay, you can come over Friday night. So the Berdichever Rebbe comes over, and he's absolutely on his best behavior. And they, they would serve two kinds of fish. And so the way the waiter phrased it was he asked the Berdichever Rebbe, he says, do you love sweet fish? or sharp fish. And the Berdichever couldn't control himself. He threw his arms up in there and he says, I love God! <laughs> and the, the fish flies off the platter in the air and lands on Reb Baruch's talus and stains his talus. And Reb Baruch was like, you see, this is what I'm talking about. This is, this is why we didn't do this, okay? And... You know, the people want to help Reb Baruch. You know, he's got like this big fish stain on his talus. And Reb Baruch says the following. Like they want to take it to clean it, he says. No, 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 no. This is the stain from someone who really loves God. And he, he kept that stain on his talus and never, never, never washed it, never got rid of it. And this talus was handed down from a Hasidic master to Hasidic master. And over the years, it was considered such a holy item that it came to the point where it wouldn't be used every day. It would only be used on Shabbos. It wouldn't just be used on Shabbos. That was too often. It came to the point where the Rebbe who had it would only wear it once a year on Yom Kippur. Can you imagine? And then the Mooncatcher Rebbe received possession of this talus. And you ready for this? He was buried in it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So, so let's start with the word love. You know, we can use love for our husband, for our wives, for our, our children, maybe for a few closest friends. But how about saving the word love for God? You know, did you see, did you see the uh, new Marvel movie? Ah, I loved that movie. Maybe not. Right? Hey, did you check out that new falafel place? I love that place. 
Maybe not. Yeah, they have great falafel. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, I enjoy that place so much. Yeah, that movie was terrific. Oh, I had such a good time at it. I really enjoy that cast. Oh, they're so talented. But love? Right? If we really want to elevate our souls, right? Like the Verdichever? Maybe we save the word love and we don't devalue it by loving everything under the sun, right? Doesn't mean we can't appreciate it, be grateful for it, right? I'm not knocking anything right now. But just maybe being more sensitive to the specialness of what that word is and saving it. Okay. This is a campaign that I've been sort of like privately waging for many years right now. It's a phrase that I've seen in newspapers and magazines, and I've heard in many conversations, and I think it's completely toxic. And I really would like to see this phrase uprooted from conversation, because I think it's the worst of what America has to offer. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's important for us to be mindful on a, on a regular basis. Let, let me give you an example. And I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. You know, everybody knows that German Jews are very precise. Do you know why they're so precise? Because Germans were so precise. And we lived in that country. So we took on that, that personality trait. And what about Polish Jews? Why are they so casual? Because Poles were casual. And so we took on that personality trait of our host country. So do you think for a second, those of us who are living in America aren't taking on certain American attributes? And in every country, you're breathing them in and they're affecting you and they are sculpting your thinking in ways that we should try to be conscious of. And let me give you what I think is a very strong example right now. And this is the phrase that I was referring to. They'll talk about certain wealthy individuals and they'll use this phrase. So-and-so is worth $5 billion. He's worth $5 billion? He might not be worth five cents. How do you know what he's worth? God will decide what he's worth. He might have $5 billion. So, so say that if, if, if you need to talk about another person's money. Say he has $5 million, not he's worth $5 million. Do, do, do you hear how toxic that is? Because you're equating not just equating, you're making a one-to-one -one correlation between a monetary value and the value of a person. That you are your bank account in lockstep. You are your bank account. So let's, let's try to make sure that we don't use that phrase. And if you can do this in a non-confrontational way that doesn't create hatred or argumentation, if you hear someone say it and you have a way to gently suggest that, you know, maybe, maybe another way of saying that is he has $5 billion, they'll get the point. You know, this is not one of those, like, <laughs> this is not one of those, you know, really hard ones to grasp. You, you kind of get it right away. And I have definitely pointed it out to people in the past. I do. And, and, you know, it hasn't caused any arguments. People get it. Okay, a related thing, a related topic, and another key word that I would ask us to think about before we use it is rich. So the, in Pirkei Avos, the, 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 the Talmud gives a very direct definition of what the word rich means. Rich means whether you're semeach bechelko, and that's Hebrew for whether you are happy 
with what you have. There's no, no dollar signs connected to the definition of the word rich. Isn't that interesting? And I can tell you as someone who lives in Los Angeles, there, there's no shortage of examples of people who have a lot of money and who are completely miserable. And also people who have almost no money and are very, very happy. So breaking this correlation between money and happiness is, is very, very important because you can be rich in friendship. You can be rich in learning. You can be rich in life experiences. There's a lot of ways to be rich that have nothing to do with money whatsoever. So the next time you use the word rich, maybe don't use it because it actually may only apply to that person's money. In which case, say, you know, if you need to say it, yeah, that person has a lot of money, <laughs> but not rich. Because rich means, okay, he's rich, he's got a lot of money, but you know what, you can be rich with a lot, without a lot of money, and you can have a lot of money and not be rich. So let's liberate that word. Let's liberate the word rich. Because I'll tell you something, all of us right now in this moment are learning Torah. All of us at this moment right now, I promise you, are rich. We're all rich right now. I don't care what you have in the bank right now, this second, every single person hearing this is rich right now. Okay. Again, let's go down and take this a, a, another step further. And again, I'm all of these are also really trying to address some of the toxicity of, of, of the value system that's being superimposed on us. That if we have insight into it, we can, we can upend. Okay? You know, I, I, I love this story. Story is of a, a drunkard. And the drunkard, it's nighttime and he's out in the street and the drunkard like recruits someone. He's lost something and he's, you know... And, and, and the drunkard is, is, you know, help me find this thing. And the man sees the drunkard is looking under a street light. There's like, you know, it's nighttime. There's a pool of light there. And the man says, did you lose it here? And, and the drunkard says, no, but the light here is better. <laughs> so, so you have to have insight into what the problem is in order to address the problem. So, so we have to shine a light, but we have to shine a light in the right places. So here's another phrase. And this is something that I've been very strict with my children about. Okay. And that's using the word need instead of want. As in, I need this, right? Usually, and it's coming from a place of total innocence, that the, the child, and by the way, we do this also, so we have to be on top of ourselves also about this. It's coming from a place of innocence, but we have to be careful because this is one of those things that if we use the word need, like let's say I, I have a iPhone, right? Whatever. Maybe it's an older model, but it works just fine. And then the new iPhone comes out and I say, I need that iPhone. No, you want that iPhone. You would like to have a new iPhone. But if your phone works perfectly well, you don't need that iPhone. You know, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. FOMO is such a huge part of the consciousness of our zeitgeist right now. No one wants to miss another, you know, opportunity to have a good time or whatever it is. I need to go to that party. I need to go to that rave. I need to go to that festival. I need to go to that place. You'd like to go. It would be enjoyable to go. You don't need to go. And again, when we use the word need, we convince ourselves. We're, we're the primary victims of, of, of this word. We convince ourselves that if I don't have that thing, fill in the blank, I can't be happy because I need it and I don't have it. But if I just want it or I'd like it or it would be nice, 
then I'm uprooting that correlation between having that thing and being happy. Do you understand? So we individually are the primary beneficiaries of breaking that connection between need and want. So the next time you use the word need, ask yourself, do you really need that thing? Or would you just like it? And then, here's a bonus step. Think of something that you actually do need that you already have and thank God for it. Okay? So, next time you use the word need, stop yourself from even saying it if it's not accurate. And then, think of something that you actually do need that you already have. And just use that as an opportunity to be grateful for it. Because most of the things that we genuinely need, we do have, is the truth. But there's so much a part of us that we don't, we just take them for granted and we're never being grateful for them. Okay. So here's another one. The word perfect. <laughs> that casserole was perfect. How about delicious? <laughs> How about delicious instead of perfect? How about saving perfect for God? Right? Because God is perfect. Right? That outfit is not perfect. That, that blouse does not match your skirt perfectly. It matches it fantastically. You look amazing in that combination. But perfect? How about, let's say, perfect for God? Speech is very, very powerful. Remember, it says God created the world through speech. Now, God doesn't have a body, God doesn't have a mouth, anything like that. But God spoke, or as Reb Shlomo says, sang the world into creation. So through speech, you can create. And one of the deepest ideas that I've really ever encountered is this notion that we are creating worlds for each other and for ourselves through our speech. And the example that I always like to give for this is if we walked into a Starbucks and there was a homeless looking man sitting at one of the tables and I said to you, like off to the side, see that, see that person over there? That person is a multi, multi-millionaire. You would think to yourself, wow, he must be like one of those eccentric geniuses, right? Look at him there with all of his like bags of belongings. Like, wow, you know, I wonder what he invented. Like, amazing, you know? I promise you, if I told you that he was a multimillionaire, you would look at him differently than you did a moment before when you thought he was a homeless person. Let me give you a more bread and butter example. If I come up to you and I tell you, see that guy over there? That's a bad guy. Now, all of a sudden, he's someone to avoid, or she's someone to avoid. And you see how it's a different world? Really, actually, a different world that you're inhabiting right now. And you're going to make different decisions based on this new world that you're in. So now, with this in mind, let's just, just contemplate this for a moment, because it's really far out. Just like God created the world through speech, we are creating worlds through our speech. And think about how many worlds, 7 billion people in the world, think about how many worlds are being created every single moment. It's wild. It's actually wild. This is why it's so great to say positive things. Because if you can encourage another person all of a sudden, before they were living in a world where they couldn't do something. Now they're living in a world where they believe they can do something. And how did that new world come into existence? Through your speech. Through your saying something positive and encouraging the other person. That's amazing. You can create worlds and more beautiful worlds. 
okay? We're also creating worlds for ourselves. When we speak, we're not just communicating a new vision and a new reality for the person we're talking to. We are reinforcing our own outlook on life. That's why I tell you again and again, you have to learn Torah every single day because this will be your outlook on life. If, if, if you don't, it says if you leave Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. In other words, this way of seeing the world is so ephemeral. Rabbi Wolfson, he says, imagine going up to someone and asking them, did you eat breakfast today? And the person goes, no, 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 I ate breakfast yesterday. Like, how does it help you that you ate breakfast yesterday? Breakfast is about today. So he says the same thing about Amuna, about faith. Faith has to be restored every single day. And we think that faith is a possession, that like faith is like a sofa. I bought a sofa. Well, I have to buy a sofa every single day. Where am I going to put all the sofas? I don't need a new sofa every single day. But faith isn't like a sofa. It's a completely different construct. It's ephemeral. It comes and it goes. No one has faith. No one has faith. You can't hold it. You can't own it. You can only renew it. So through our own language, we reinforce certain ideas that we have. I know someone who, who loved to recount multiple times to multiple people the horrible things that happened to them. And on some level, there's something cathartic about it. You talk about a hard time and you get it out of your system. So there's definitely a good side to it. But there's also a really bad side to it, where you just say it again and again, and you force yourself to relive this very negative occurrence. And what are you doing? <laughs> like, just stop talking about it, right? If you still need to process it and it still traumatizes, you should see someone about it, you know? That's a sign to you that this, is, that this damaged you. You have to work through it, but work through it with a professional. To talk about it endlessly is just to cause yourself to relive this negative experience. So why is communication between people so difficult? And, you know, you can give different answers, but I want to give you my answer. My answer is that each one of us is walking around with a private dictionary inside our heads. If you grew up in a family that was extremely supportive, then everything that you did growing up was great. It's great. It's great. It's wonderful. Oh, it's fantastic. Okay. Now imagine you're one of these people who grew up in such a family and you work very hard on a project at work and you turn it into your boss and your boss looks at it and says, it's good. Now you feel like a total failure and you're depressed now. You work so hard on this. And he just said it was good, right? Like the baseline of acceptance for you in your own private dictionary is great. Now imagine your boss grew up in a family where he couldn't do anything right. Every single thing he did was just a disaster because his parents and his family was just so negative. Couldn't do anything right growing up. When he tells you it's good, that means it's great. So here you've got two people. He thinks he's giving you a compliment. He's telling you that you did amazing work. He's using a word good, which for him is a very special word. You've grown up in a place of grade inflation, as they say in universities, right? You're used to great as the minimum. You're hearing good and it's like, you know, disaster. So what I'm trying to tell you is that people are miscommunicating with each other all of the time because they have their own definitions for the key words of life. Now, imagine 
do you think that you can have a conversation about God with an average person out there and have any hope of communicating with them? Do you know that the word God is one of the most emotionally charged words there is, period? Period end. As soon as you say God, you are tapping into that person's lifelong positive or negative body of experiences. And you think now you can make a point and communicate with that person? Or at least appreciate the difficulty up front of communicating your point. And all of the most important words there are are the most emotionally charged words that people have completely different definitions for. So here's what happens. You've got two people having a conversation, each leaving the conversation thinking that they've understood what the other person has said, and each absolutely being completely off. So how do we get out of this? If you want to communicate something that uses one of these key words, love, happiness, money, whatever it is, after you communicate the point, ask the other person. You know, you can phrase this in your own words, you know, not to be confrontational with them, but just ask them. Can you say back to me what you think I just said? Because that's actually when the conversation begins. Not after you finish making your point. When you see whether you were understood or not. Look how precise creation and God's guidance of this world actually is. And by the way, just one of my favorite thoughts from the Ger Rebbe is the Seder seems like such a mishmash of activities, right? You're dipping things, you're talking, you're hiding things, you're taking things off the table, then you're replacing them and putting them back on the table. You're filling your cup, you're not filling your cup, you're, you're, you're going outside, you're, you're, you're doing so many different things. My, my daughter researched some old um, customs, and I, I don't think anyone does this today, but I, I, I think it's so interesting. At a certain point, they used to lift All the people around the table used to lift the table up at a certain point, which is interesting. You're you're covering the matzahs, you're uncovering the matzahs. There's a lot going on. And there doesn't seem to be a, a clear order to it. And yet, so with that in mind, isn't it striking that the name of this entire process is called Seder? Now, Seder is a very specific Hebrew word. Seder means something that goes in order, right? Like when someone asks you, it's, it's part of the vernacular. If someone asks you in Hebrew, like, what's your schedule? Like you have a certain schedule during your day, right? You get up at a certain time, you go to the gym, you eat breakfast, right? You learn, you daven, whatever it is. The way they'll ask you what your schedule is, is they'll say, what is your Seder? Meaning there's a very regimented orderly process. So, so there's, there's a great teaching here, which is that just like this Seder seems like, as we say, a total balagan, meaning a total mishmash, like chaos, chaos. In reality, it reflects our life, which also seems like a total mishmash, like you just just random things flying around, right? That we're reacting to and trying to control. And yet it's all so precise. That's that's the surprising thing about it. It we perceive it as disorder, and yet it's so precise. I mean, just think back to what I said to you earlier. I'm just getting my glasses replaced. And meanwhile, I'm interacting with the Parsha itself. <laughs> Just crazy, right? The level of order and, and how much, it, it, it's just such a reminder of how much we don't know. Because how can something be so ordered and yet appear to us as so chaotic? That, I'll tell you what that means to me personally. It means that we haven't got the faintest clue of what's going on.
Because if, if it's that precise, we should be able to see the precision of it. And the very fact that we can perceive the precision of it shows you how just absolutely in the dark we are. So that just, you know, if you, if you, if you want to have an open heart and you want to just sort of like take in the message of what that means is that God is really great. God is so beyond us. There's certain glimpses that we get where we kind of get it. That's why the mitzvot are so important to keep. Because God is telling us, he's going out of his way, so to speak, to say, do this, don't do that. And if you think about it, if you're wandering around in, a, in the dark, absolutely in the dark, and they're like, you could fall off a cliff on this side, and you could walk through a, you know, a plate glass window on that side. And, you know, if you walk this certain direction, you can like walk into a nest of vipers. And someone who knows, who made, who made the structure is giving me guidance through this structure. I'm going to listen. <laughs> or I should listen if I know what's best for myself. I mean, forget about being religious at this point. Just self-preservation. And the level of self-preservation alone, I want to listen. And you go, okay, but that's inconvenient, that's uncomfortable, I'm not used to that. Okay, well, you know, and everyone's got to decide for themselves and make sense out of it for themselves. But there's, if, I, if I'm, if as a starting point, I'm being made aware of how little I know and the guide is giving me directions, I mean, at least, I'm just talking for myself right now, at least I feel like I'm smart enough to listen to the guide. That, that much I know. Okay. So again, this opportunity that's being presented us right now, all times are not created equal. This is, this is one of the big differences between Torah and secular science. Science posits that time is this consistent entity, and there's no difference between the second that's ahead of us and the second that just passed. It's just time. Time is time, right? Torah says, okay, time is time. That's correct. But time, excuse me, time also has, so to speak, a personality to it. That's interesting. Now, listen very carefully. Time does not have a power to it, right? People who endow power to certain times, that's a little bit of idol worship because only God has power, okay? You can't take God's power and put it into other things, even if it seems innocent, like, like Pesach. Pesach's from the Torah, so Pesach has power. No, God has power. Pesach is an opportunity. These might seem like nuances, but they're not nuances. These are big ideas, that big distinctions right now. So Pesach is an opportunity that's presented to us in time to liberate ourselves in a way that we can't do as easily anyway at other times of the year. Okay. That's, that's the idea. We're always talking about how whatever is going on in the Parsha is going on in the world. One of my favorite ones, if, if you all remember several years ago, we had mad cow disease. Do you remember that? They finally figured out that this virus that was entering into cows was caused by cows eating other cow parts. I guess the farmers were killing cows and maybe there were parts of these cows that they didn't know what to do with. So they were using it as food for the other cows. So cows were eating cows. And I realized that that week, the Torah portion was about Paro's dream about the cows rising from the Nile and the skinny cows eating the fat cows. So there it was, like the week that they made the scientific breakthrough about cows eating cows, that was what was going on in the Torah that week? <clears throat> so, so it can get hyper specific, <laughs> and 
I told you Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita put it so poetically, so, so deeply, when he said that God takes the letters of that week's Parsha and he weaves them together into the fabric of time and space. So with that in mind, here's a new adventure. So my glasses got broken, but I didn't have my, my prescription. So I call in advance and, and they say, you know something, in this instance where we're replacing broken frames, you don't have to have your prescription on you. So I went and I'm carrying a Torah book with me. I put it on the counter and the person comes up to help me and he sees the Torah book and he says to me, are you Jewish? And I said, yes. He said, I'm also Jewish. I said, oh, okay. And I notice his name tag and his name is Ido. Ido is actually a name of a prophet in Tanakh, but it's, it's not a common name at all. Anyway, he says to me, we can't help you. <laughs> I'm like, well, what's going on? He said, well, you need your prescription. I said, yeah, but I called in advance and I happen to know your corporate policy, which is, is in this instance, you don't need a prescription. And he said, yeah, but the thing is, the frames that you're bringing in, we don't make anymore, which means we have to give you new frames and new frames is like getting new glasses. So it's actually not the category that you thought it was. It's just the normal category. You're getting new frames. And for that, you need a prescription. I was like, ah, all right. And he said, listen, I'm sorry, but this is California state law. I'm like, okay. And by the way, I wasn't frustrated because I'm very sympathetic to the logic of it. The idea is that you don't want to be issuing brand new glasses for people where it's an old prescription and basically they can't see very well. The idea being that someone could be driving and they could cause, God forbid, a fatal car crash because their vision is off and they didn't renew their prescription. You understand? So in other words, this is really protecting the, the general public, this law. And I appreciate that. So he said, so I can't help you out. So, okay, whatever it is, I, I walked away. Now, at the end of every Torah portion, if you look in the Chumash, what it tells you is the number of verses in that week's Parsha. Just, it's there. You just look it up. You'll, you'll see it. Now that you know what it is, you'll go, oh, that's the number of verses or psukim in that week's Parsha. And then there's a notation right afterwards, which gives you a mnemonic, meaning a way to remember that that's the number of verses in that week's Parsha. So what they'll do is they'll give you a word, which is the gematria, the numerical equivalent of that number of verses. So anyway, I tend not to ever look at those things. I, one, one day I'll, I'll, I'll delve into that and we'll explore it together, you know? But, but for now, whatever it is, it's just something I, I never like go to regularly. So this Shabbos, after we finish reading the Torah, for the first time ever, my, my great friend Yehuda Solomon or Chazan from the Moshav band, he turns to me and he, and he points to the number of verses in this week's Torah portion. And he says, it's Tzadik, the, the letter Tzadik, which is the number 90. And then the Gematria, the name that they give you to help you to remember it, is Ido. Is that, isn't that something? <laughs> what a striking example of how whatever is going on in the Parsha is going on in your life. Like, can you imagine anything more specific than that? The number of psukim in this week's Parsha is what I end up interacting with in life. And, and if you just want to take it one more step, you don't, you don't have to take it this step. He was actually being very righteous. You know, the letter tzadi, tzadik, means a righteous person, a tzadik. He was actually being, he wanted to help me out. And I could see that he was genuinely being friendly and inclined to help me. But he's like, look, I, I can't do it. And for good reason, because otherwise you're sending out people, you know, behind, you know, going 60, 80 miles an hour where they can't see straight. You can't, you can't do that. So that's like a tzaddik. Anyway, very striking. The Torah is all around us. 
and maybe even a bigger thought than what I just told you, which is how often is this happening and we don't realize it? That's the amazing thing. You know, in other words, when we get a sign of something like this, it's not to tell us, wow, look how in that particular instance that just happened. That's not the take-home. The take-home is, look what's always happening around us. Do you understand the difference? A very, very big difference. Look what is always happening around us. Now, I mentioned to you that whatever is going on in the Torah is going on in the world. And we just read Parshas Mitzorah. And Parshas Mitzorah is all about speech. Very interesting. It's about the misuse of speech and then the rectification of speech. Usually, most years, you've got certain Torah portions that are kind of coupled, okay? You read kind of two portions for the week. And one of those main couplings are Parshas Tazria, which we read last week because we had a leap year this year, and Mitzorah. Tazria and Mitzorah are these partner portions that are usually read the same Shabbos. And the structure of these two is very intuitive. Tazria, which we read first, is about diagnosing someone who has this spiritual malady, which manifests in a physical way, called saras, which is loosely translated as leprosy. But there was a process where you got through, got rid of it. So, so Parsha's Tazria is about diagnosing this condition called saras. And Parsha's Mitzorah, the following week's Parsha, is about curing it and getting rid of it. Okay, so you diagnose it, then you get rid of it. Those are the primary subject matters of these two portions. Okay. And how did you get saras? So the main way to get saras was by speaking ill of other people. So isn't it interesting that Pesach, the mouth that speaks, that we're reading Parsha Mitzoras, which is all about getting rid of, curing the one who spoke ill and getting out of Egypt? Do you know the Medrash says that one year before we left Egypt, no one among the Jewish people was saying Lashon Hara, was speaking ill about each other. Isn't that amazing? In other words, one of the keys to the great ultimate redemption, and remember the Zohar says all future redemptions are based on this redemption that we're celebrating right now, Pesach, leaving Egypt. All future redemptions are contained within this one. So the curing of the one who spoke ill is the Parsha that we just read. The rectification of speech. And of course, we said that God created the world through speech. He spoke the world or sang the world into creation. That's an amazing correlation. It's a really beautiful correlation. You know, the person who got Saras had to say something. This is so heartbreaking to me. If anyone came near that person, they had to warn them off. And they would say about themselves, Tame, Tame. Interesting. That means unclean, unclean. Can you imagine having to use those words about yourself to ward people off from coming into contact with you? This was part of the tshuva process, part of the rectification. And what was so bad? And it is really bad. Speaking Lush and Hara, speaking against other people really is bad. And one of the curative steps in terms of getting rid of the tsaras was the person had to isolate themselves. And they had to isolate themselves in two parts. One, they had to go outside of the camp and they had to be all alone. And the Talmud explained something. And I'll tell you the way Reb Shlomo explain the Talmud. 
why was that part of the fixing process, to be all alone? And the answer is because when you spoke against that other person, whether it was conscious or unconscious, do you know what you were trying to do? Take away that person's friends from them. Isn't that heartbreaking? Like if you thought about it, when you speak ill to someone about another person, you are actively trying to take their friends away from them. So part of the process of fixing that is, how does it feel to be all alone? How does it feel? This is what you were doing to the other person. Now you're experiencing it. How does it feel? Doesn't feel so good, right? So let's go back to these words, tame, tame, because this, it's always unclean, unclean. This is always kind of like, kind of reverberated, like resonated with me, these words. So this year I decided to look at those two words, tame, tame, and to do the gamatria of those two words. And you want to hear something interesting? It's spelled, I'll tell you how tame is spelled, tet. Mem, Aleph. Tet is nine, Mem is 40, Aleph is one. That adds up to 50. So Tame Tame, what a person would say, is the number 100, right? 50 and 50 is 100. You know what other phrase in the Torah is 100? Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha is the first command to Avraham Avinu, Abraham our father, to leave where he is and to go to another place. And interesting. And everyone points out the fact that grammatically, lech is reflexive. So lech actually means look into yourself. In other words, this journey that Avraham, who, right, was the, you know, the container of all future generations. Look into yourself. And then that's lech. And then lecha means physically move forward. In other words, generate insight and then enact it in the world through forward progress. Amazing. Tame Tame is the same as Lech Lecha. In other words, I've experienced a setback. Let me look into myself. Why did I feel that need to feel better than someone else? Why did I feel that need to publicize something negative or to invent or create or distort something about another person? Am I so insecure? Am I so angry at that person? If I am, maybe what I have to do is figure out a way to, to make peace with that other person or to, to, to reconcile my emotions about that other person because the, the, the path that I've chosen just to speak behind that person's back is is clearly not working. It's clearly clearly taking that energy and I'm directing it in a, in a, in a very negative way. I'll tell you something. One time, this only happened to me once in my life, but I'm sharing it with you. One time, a person who I really hardly knew came up to me and he said, I want to apologize to you. And, you know, that was very striking. Like, what's he going to say? Like, I hardly know this guy. He said, I was speaking really badly about you to other people. And he said, the reason is because I wanted to be friends with you. And then when we didn't become close friends, I just started speaking bad about you to other people. And I was like, I, I forgive you. Yeah, you know, sure. But, you know, why are we speaking bad about other people? We've got to figure out, do a little lech lecha action, look within ourselves also. Right? Why? 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 Because there's something unresolved there. And we have to figure out how to resolve it, or at least just shut our mouths. Right? At the very least. All right. I want to tell you two more things about the mitzvah. One is, and I think this is really interesting, after seven days of being outside the camp, they got to go back in the camp. 
right? I mean, you, you got to be among your neighbors and everything like that. But you ready for this detail? I was really struck by this. You're not allowed to go back into your tent. Isn't that interesting? So you're back among people, but not fully back, because you can't go into your house yet. And you have to spend another seven days outside your house. Isn't that interesting? And I'll just tell you what that means to me. And by the way, before I do, I want to add one more thing. One of the reasons why the rabbis explain why a person had to say tame tame about themselves is not just to, God forbid, humiliate themselves by publicizing the fact that they had this malady, but so that other people would know to pray for them. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, when you pray for another person, you have compassion for the other person, and you recreate this bond and repair this bond with the other person. So part of the healing process was that you were giving other people an opportunity to pray for you, which is reconnecting the social fabric that had been ripped by you through your lush and heart, through your talking bad. Isn't that interesting? So the antidote was to arouse the compassion and the active prayers of other people for your behalf in, 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 in order to restore that unity among the Jewish people. I, I find that amazing, really amazing. Because when you look at it just on the surface of it, it just seems like, oh, this person's got to embarrass themselves by saying this thing. But there's so much more going on, as always in the Torah. Okay, so now just this, just this idea. What does it mean that you get to go back in the camp and you should say, shine, finished. I'm back in the camp. Let me go in my house already. What is this idea that I have to spend now seven days outside my own house? And I'll tell you my understanding of it. You know, you got to take that pause. You had a life experience. Take a pause before you go back to your everyday life. Take a pause. You know, there, there's so much wisdom in the Jewish act of mourning, right? We, you know, we should all live long. We shouldn't know from it. But those of us who have lost loved ones, right? You don't just go to work the next day. And there's some people who will be like, no, 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 this is good for me. I got to keep my mind busy and I'm just going to, this, but believe me, this is, this is good. No, no, no. I'll be in the, I'll be in the office the next day. I mean, I got to go in the afternoon to bury my dad, but but I'll be in a little bit later on in the day. Okay, I'm I'm not judging anyone. There there are, there are people who do this, and I'm not exaggerating. This this happens, believe me, all the time. But what about that pause? Something just happened. Pause. Right. Sometimes you're in a conversation with someone. And someone just tells you something very, very meaningful or something very, very deep. How about just taking it in? How about just pausing for a moment before you actively respond? And I think that that may be part of the wisdom in terms of the healing process of the person that they're back in, their, they're back in the camp, but they're not back in their house yet. Not like, okay, that's over with. I'm back to it. We just pick it up where we left off. No. Okay. And now I want to say one final thought. And this, I just, this just amazed me. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to discover this. I'm probably the millionth person to discover this, but no one told me. Okay. Part of the curing of the Mitzorah and there's many steps to it. A person had to shave, and this men and women had to shave their whole bodies, including their eyebrows, so that they should be like newborns. And interesting, like they're starting life all over again after this. So it was a very elaborate process, like curing someone who has tsaras. 
And one of the steps in the process, listen carefully, was the person had to bring a sacrifice and the Kohen would take a drop of blood from the sacrifice and put it in the middle of the person's ear. Now, that, I learned a new word, okay? <laughs> For you uh, lovers of language, it's called the Targus. T-A-R-G-U-S. What is the Targus? It is that little flap of skin that covers the, 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 the central ear hole, if you will. <laughs> I, clearly, I, I didn't go to medical school. The ear hole, yes, yes, I said those words. But the, this, this, this little protruding bit of skin that covers it, that's called the Targus. So, so would it be in the middle of your earlobe? Would it be on the Targus? Whatever it is, the drop of blood would go there. It would go on your right thumb, right earlobe, right thumb, and right big toe in those three places. And if you want to see that, this is in Sefer Vayikra in Leviticus, Parshas Mitzora, verse, chapter 14, verse 14, 14, 14. Okay, you can see where it says it. Okay, so what's the big deal? Why am I so amazed by that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if you're following the Torah portion, that should really ring a bell. And you should say, hey, wait a second. That exact process just happened a few parshas ago. And it did, and you can look it up. It's in Parshas Tzav, which is also in Vayikra, chapter 8, verse 24. Look it up. You'll see that the exact same process, you ready for this? A drop of blood in the middle of the right ear, on the right thumb, and on the right big toe, was done when they consecrated the high priest of Israel and his sons, and to get them ready to run the to run the Mishkan, to run the, the Holy Temple. Do you understand that part of the curing process of the person who got Saras? Like, imagine, like, what an ordeal it is to get Saras. And... I mean, I'm just speaking for myself right now, but I would imagine it would be pretty humiliating. And now, as I'm being cured, they're consecrating me like the holiest person in the entire nation of Israel. They're saying, this is what you have inside of you. You're like this exalted soul and you're getting a new start. Be the exalted soul that you are from now on. Because this is you. We're doing the same thing to you as we did the high priest of Israel and his sons. The holiest person among the nation of Israel. You're getting the exact same treatment. I think that's beautiful. And you know something? It's very reminiscent of something that the Baal HaTorim brings down. And again, it's, it's like... However you understand it, the, whether it's true in the detail of it or if it's just a message, a truth that's being communicated here, it says when God clothed Adam, right? This is after the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge. He's about to be exiled from the Garden of Eden. The Balaturim says, what clothes did God make for Adam? The clothes of the high priest of Israel. The coin Gadol. In other words, you know what? You made a mistake. We all make mistakes. We're human. We're, we're, we're human. Every single one of us makes mistakes. But after you make a mistake, don't forget that you're still the highest. You know, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the great Hasidic master said, I'm the tzaddik of all the tzaddikim and all the keys of heaven and earth are in my hand. 
And if I make a mistake, I'm still the tzaddik of all the tzaddikim, and all the keys to heaven and earth are still in my hand. You make a mistake, we all make mistakes. But don't forget that you're still holy. That never goes away. And that new opportunity to realize your holiness never goes away either. And that's perhaps the greatest Pesach, the greatest redemption of all, is to liberate ourselves from our own sense of limitation, to understand that the greatness inside of us never goes away. It was implanted with us from birth. God puts a piece of himself inside of us. That's our soul. It doesn't go away for every moment that we're alive. And that means our greatness never goes away and can always be manifested. And to understand that and to live that is to be free. So let's just recap. I'll go over those words again. Love. Let's say love for God and just our closest loved ones, right? Remember the Berdichever Rebbe? I don't love fish, I love God! Need versus want, right? Let's not use the word need if we only want it. Because we're going to convince ourselves that we really do need it, and we don't. And then we're going to be miserable for no reason. Let's not say about anyone that they're worth a certain amount of money. They have a certain amount of money. And the word perfect, let's save that for God too. And when we get into deep conversations with another person, you know what? Ask them, did they actually hear you? Ask them, what, what do you think that I just said? And give them the opportunity to, to respond. And, and then if they don't say back what you mean to communicate, say, okay, thank you so much. You know what? I, I think I meant it just a little bit differently, and this is what I was trying to say. And then the conversation can really begin. So here's one more liberating thing to keep in mind, okay? One more phrase. When people ask you, where are you spending Passover this year? There's only one answer, Jerusalem. <laughs> wherever, wherever you're spending Passover, that's plan B. That's plan B. I'm being, I can't be more serious right now. It sounds like a joke. Anyone who asks me where I'm going, I say Jerusalem. And then they say, you're going to Israel? I say, I, we all are. <laughs> Plan B is the Catskills. <laughs> okay? Now, let me tell you why that's important. Because we are supposed, one of the questions, and this is in the Talmud, I'm, I'm, I'm not being humorous right now. One of the questions that were asked, the Gomorrah in Gomorrah Shabbos lists six questions that each of us will be asked at the end of our lives. And one of the six questions, that's not a lot of questions. You, want, you know, like if you have a final exam, you only have six questions, you want to get all six right. One of the questions we're going to be asked is, did you await the Mashiach? That's, that's, in other words, did you live with the understanding that the redemption can happen at any time? That's one of the things that we're going to be asked. And if you've already written off the idea that it can come today, tomorrow, before I finish this sentence, so, so we live with the idea that it can absolutely happen this Pesach. So we have plan B. Reb Shlomo talked about a particular Rebbe, I don't remember which. In August, he would carry around a fur coat. He would say to him, what are you carrying around a fur coat for? He'd say, why? Because it was hot yesterday, it means it's going to be, it can't be cold today. In other words, he was living with the idea that anything is possible at any time because God is infinite. And, and that's how in his own life, he was able to live with the infinity of possibilities before him. So let's not make God, let's not make God small. Let's not make God small. Okay. See you all in Yerushalayim. Amen.
Let's, I'll tell you where, let's make a meeting place. Let's make a meeting place. At the Kotel, the entrance where you go, like where it's cooler, that entrance there, which is if this is a Kotel, it's already, it's all the way to your left. You know, that big archway into that cool spot. We'll meet there. That's our meeting spot, okay? Okay. Okay. All to Israel on a mission. You be our madrich, please. Listen, I, listen, I, I, I'm just going to be happy to be there. <laughs> okay, okay, be well. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.